nuclear weapons, and global warming. Both provide the potential for planetary apocalypse and societal collapse. But if a person wishes to be proactive and work towards resolution of these problems, where do you put your attention first? What is more important to solve? It's a question that has generated quite a lot of debate among activists. Do we go first for the chicken or the egg? And then you speak with a genuine expert, someone who has dedicated his life to working against society's worst impulses and technologies to stand up for people and the environment, even to the point of being imprisoned. And he tells you, Global warming can't be stopped until we disarm. We can't plan the end of the world with nuclear weapons at the same time to claim to be working to save the planet from global warming. I mean, those are diametrically opposed. We have to bring the human family together to collectively solve these two problems, the arms race, war as one problem, and global warming. Well, when Patrick O'Neill, one of the Kings Bay Plowshare Seven, who was just recently released from prison for peacefully protesting nuclear-armed Trident submarines at the Kings Bay Naval Base, when he points out that working against nuclear, working for peace, and working on climate change issues are one and the same, you begin to understand how complex and far-reaching is the work that needs to be done by those who recognize the devastating nature of that terrible seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with two members of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7, Catholic activists who broached the Georgia naval base with a message of peace and love and no nukes. And they were arrested, tried, convicted, and imprisoned for their nonviolent actions. Patrick O'Neill and Martha Hennessy share their beliefs, the nature of the action they took, the consequences, and what they are involved in since their release. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, and more honest nuclear information than the late Queen Elizabeth II ever shared in her 70-year reign. All of it coming up in just a few moments. This is Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 13, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Because I'm going on an off-grid vacation next week, I am recording this on Sunday, September 11, and some of the details of these stories may have changed, most specifically in Ukraine. As of this recording, the last operating reactor at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has been shut down, 
after a power line connecting the facility to the grid was restored on late Saturday night. Shutting down the sixth and final nuclear reactor at the site in the midst of active conflict poses enormous and unprecedented challenges for the nuclear industry. Defunct or dormant nuclear plants still require electricity and careful maintenance by trained staff to monitor and safeguard spent nuclear fuel, among other safety operations. As it stands now, Zaporizhia currently suffers obstacles in sourcing spare parts that they need and fuel that would be required. The facility could turn to backup generators to power its emergency cooling operations, but they only have enough fuel on site for about 10 days. Obtaining more would require several truckloads of fuel to cross through an active conflict area subjected to continual artillery fire many times a day. As to the source of the shelling, Ukraine is blaming Russia. Russia is blaming Ukraine. But workers reached by the Wall Street Journal have blamed the artillery fire on Russia. Plant technicians, backed by European officials and independent nuclear analysts, have said the shelling serves the Kremlin's broader goal of severing Zaporizhia's power connection to Ukraine's remaining territory and eventually rerouting it into Russian-held areas. Russian soldiers have laid landmines around the plant's cooling ponds, parked heavy artillery near its reactors, and turned its safety shelters, meant for plant workers to flee to in an emergency, into a bunker for themselves, these workers say. Rafael Grossi, the chief of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which finally got a team of experts to examine the site last week, stated on Sunday... This is an unsustainable situation and is becoming increasingly perilous. This is completely unacceptable. It cannot stand. Note that the IAEA has within its charter the mandate to support and promote nuclear energy. So for its head, Mr. Grossi, to be making such alarming statements is, in and of itself, alarming and a measure of the danger that is being faced. Here in the U.S., proof that former President Trump stored another country's nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago has been confirmed by Rolling Stone magazine. In a major news report, it stated that materials relating to a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities were among the nearly 300 classified documents found by federal agents during numerous searches of the former president's Florida compound over the past year. Several anonymous sources familiar with the ongoing investigation told the publication that documents detailing an unidentified foreign government's nuclear defense readiness was located amongst the materials recovered by authorities between January and August of this year. The Post previously reported that federal agents were specifically instructed to look for nuclear-related material during the Mar-a-Lago search. No word yet on which country was compromised. And now, with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, is Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. This new power, which has proved itself to be such a terrifying weapon of destruction, is harnessed for the first time for the common good of our community. Those were the hopeful but delusional words spoken in 1956 by the British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, who died last week at the age of 96. The occasion was the official opening of Calder Hall in northeast England, the world's first full-scale commercial nuclear power station. 
This misplaced optimism about the benefits of nuclear power followed on from the immortal and equally mistaken pronouncement in 1954 by then Atomic Energy Commission Chairman Louis Strauss, who described the future of nuclear energy as too cheap to meter. Queen Elizabeth lived long enough to see that common good brutally shattered by the 1979 Three Mile Island nuclear accident, the explosion of Ukraine's Chernobyl reactor in 1986, and the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011. She has now been spared living through what the rest of us currently fear most, a second nuclear tragedy in Ukraine, as fighting persists around the six-reactor Zaporizhia nuclear power plant embroiled in the Russia-Ukraine war. Not that any of these horrors has deterred most political leaders from clinging to the misplaced optimism expressed by the British Queen 66 years ago. With the same blindness and fealty to fossil fuel corporations that ignored the obvious warnings of climate peril, those who have the power to make change and end this reckless adherence to the nuclear delusion instead tout similar false mantras about its utility for our common good. The Queen did recognise the evil of nuclear weapons, however, and it was her uncle, Earl Mountbatten, who expressed it so forcefully in Strasbourg on the 11th of May 1979, when he presented the Louise Weiss Foundation Peace Prize to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, known as CIPRI, and which is still doing great work today. Mountbatten said then, and I quote, As a military man who has given half a century of active service, I say in all sincerity that the nuclear arms race has no military purpose. Wars cannot be fought with nuclear weapons. Their existence only adds to our perils because of the illusions which they have generated. The world now stands on the brink of the final abyss. Let us all resolve to take all possible practical steps to ensure that we do not, through our own folly, go over the edge. Nuclear power, like nuclear weapons, also adds to our perils because of those same delusions expressed so innocently by a young queen in 1956. But now we know better. Nevertheless, we remain at the edge of that final abyss, our future hanging in the balance not only because of the ever-present danger of nuclear weapons, still not abolished, and the devastation of the climate crisis, but also as we face the possibility of yet another nuclear power catastrophe. Whatever your views of monarchy, those in position of prominence can use their influence to speak out on important issues. Prince Charles, now King Charles III, has had his controversies, but the one area he is strong on is the environment and climate change. On a recent visit to Canada, he urged political leaders to work with indigenous knowledge keepers to restore harmony with nature. Like many of us, Charles has confronted that refusal of those in public office to take warnings seriously. Back in 1970, then Prince Charles warned, quote, we are faced at this moment with the horrific effects of pollution in all its cancerous forms. Officially, King Charles has no actual power, but then, nor do we. We can only continue to speak truth to it. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. In North Korea, a new law calls for automatic nuclear launches if the country's leadership or command and control systems are threatened. In this updated nuclear policy law, North Korea enshrined the right to use preemptive nuclear strikes to protect itself, with leader Kim Jong-un saying the legislation makes the country's nuclear status irreversible and also bars any denuclearization talks. 
Ankit Panda of the U.S.-based Carnegie Endowment for International Peace said, The basic idea here is to communicate to the United States and South Korea that decapitating the North Korean leadership would not spare them nuclear retaliation. Multinational investment banking firm Goldman Sachs does not see nuclear as a transformational technology for the future. This according to Michele Della Vigna, head of global investment research for the company. After stating that nuclear was not a transformational technology for the future, he went on to say, We think wind, solar, and hydrogen are, but not nuclear. And Carl Grossman, journalist and eminence grise for those who oppose nuclear, published Why is there more media talk about using nuclear weapons than about banning them? He explains, a coalition of peace organizations in the United States is charging that media are acting like the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons does not exist when it provides the only pathway to a safe, secure future free of the nuclear threat. Grossman points out, that the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW, calculated that last year the United States spent over $84,000 per minute on nuclear weapons, even as the United Nations works to abolish them. We will have a link up to Carl's article on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 586. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... As the world edges closer to possible nuclear catastrophe at Zaporizhia, or who knows where else, one has to wonder, is there any way out for a planet, people, and the environment? And if so, what is it, and how quickly can we start taking the steps to turn this mess around? It's a crucial topic that's hard to raise because, hey, it's too complex. Just give us a sound bite and reductionist thinking. And that's what the nuclear industry is happy to do, with its multi-million dollar PR propaganda budget and a cascade of well-spun press releases that are all in their favor. Which means that those of us who see the folly of nuclear and try to raise the alarm are regularly shut out of coverage and media platforms in which to share our perspective. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. This is what we do. Now in its 12th year, Nuclear Hot Seat is where you can get honest nuclear information from around the world that doesn't conform to the nukester's full-court press. We feature interviews with genuine experts and frontline activists, news, numbnuts of the week, and the hot story. We work hard to bring you stories and insights that the nukesters and their political minions would rather you not know. So if you've come to value Nuclear Hot Seat as an information source, the time to support us with a donation would be right now. Any amount helps. We'll take thousands, but how about five dollars? The same as a cup of coffee here in the U.S. Or buy us a cup of coffee a month with a recurring five dollar donation. Whether you help once or every month, you're part of helping to keep this show alive. To do so, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red donate button, and help us with a donation of any amount. Do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured in The Kings Bay Plowshare 7 are a group of Catholic peace activists who broke into the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base in Georgia on April 4, 2018, 
and carried out a symbolic act of protest against nuclear weapons. The name of the action and the wider anti-nuclear plowshares movement comes from the prophet Isaiah's command to beat swords into plowshares. As a result of their nonviolent actions, the group were arrested, tried, and a federal grand jury found them guilty on three felony counts and a misdemeanor charge. Members served up to three years in prison and house arrest for their actions. Prison sentences and home confinement have ended for the Trident Disarmament Action Against Nuclear Submarines, and we were able to speak with two of the seven for this week's show. Patrick O'Neill is 61 years old, a journalist, father of eight, and a grandfather. His peacemaking efforts include extensive work opposing nuclear weapons, as well as working for abolition of the death penalty, supporting immigrants, the New Poor People's Campaign, Black Lives Matter, and other anti-oppression and anti-racism efforts. Patrick has spent more than two years in jail and prison for his peacework. Martha Hennessy is the seventh grandchild of social activist, political radical, and Catholic worker founder Dorothy Day. A lifelong activist, Martha has been arrested and imprisoned protesting nuclear power, war, the use of drones, the torture of prisoners in Guantanamo and other prisons, and the use of starvation as a weapon of war in Yemen. She has traveled to Russia, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Jordan, and Palestine to understand the effects of war on other peoples. Martha travels and speaks on the topics of life and work in community, Catholic social teaching, and peacemaking efforts in the tradition of the Catholic worker movement. I spoke with Patrick O'Neill and Martha Hennessy on August 25th, 2022. Patrick O'Neill and Martha Hennessy, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. We're honored to be here. You are two of seven activists known collectively as the Kings Bay Plowshare Seven. Let's start out with a little bit of background so that we can have an understanding of plowshares. What is it? Is it a group? Is it a movement? Is it something else? I would call it a movement with a hundred different groups. It began in 1980 with Phil Berrigan and Dan Berrigan, his brother, uh, both priests. Phil had ultimately left the priesthood, and it was kind of a follow-up to the Catonsville Nine action in 1968 with the destruction of draft files of young men being sent to Vietnam. And it very much keeps a focus on the nuclear weapons. We go by Isaiah 2.4. We shall beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and we'll study war no more. And over 100 actions have been carried out since 1980, both in the United States and around the world, mostly in Europe. Our goal and our hope is to bring more attention within the U.S. federal courts to the illegality and immorality of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. What was the Kings Bay Plowshares action and why was it undertaken? The reason that we selected Naval Station Kings Bay in St. Mary's, Georgia, right on the Florida border, is because that's the East Coast home port for the Trident submarine fleet. 
Uh, there's also a West Coast home port. And the Trident submarine is arguably the most horrific and deadly weapon system ever developed, ever, ever, ever in the history of warfare. You know, I tell people if you see a Trident submarine floating by in Kings Bay, Georgia, you're basically seeing the end of the world. That's what Trident represents. It represents the end of the world. It has so much tonnage of nuclear firepower on it that it could end the human experiment. It's a hideous weapon system. The weapon system represents the end of the world. It's the end of the human experiment. In other words, these weapons can't be used because if they are used, then the whole premise behind nuclear deterrence, you know, mutually assured destruction, it doesn't work, right? Because as soon as you use them, that's over. And maybe life as we know it is over. So that's why we went to Kings Bay, because there really wasn't a lot of opposition to it. And we were hoping that our action, which was, you know, theatrical, high drama, we were hoping it was kind of a Boston Tea Party, Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changers kind of action that would kind of wake people up. And I think to, uh, to some degree it did that, but we wanted to expose it for what it was. What did the action consist of? There were seven of you. Where did you go and what did you do? Three of us, the priest, the widow, and the bachelor Catholic worker all went to the nuclear bunkers. That was the highest risk part of our action. Two of us, two women, went to the uh, Strategic Weapons Facility Administrative Building. And then two men, uh, both Catholic workers, went to the missile shrine site where they had on display for the public the evolution of these D-2 missiles that carry nuclear warheads. And the actions consisted of holding banners, pouring blood, symbolically hammering on the uh, mock-up missiles, posting an indictment on the administrative building door, leaving the book The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg at the uh, threshold of the door. We split into three groups. Martha and Claire went to the administration building of the base. Mark and I went to the missile shrine and Carmen and Steve and Liz went to the bunkers where the actual nuclear weapons are in underground bunkers. Despite the fact that these bunkers were holding the deadliest weapon system in the world, three unarmed people could uh, get right up to it and, and be right there. And that's what we did. We, I mean, I, our goal really wasn't to expose the fact that there is no security with nuclear weapons either way, any way you look at it. But it, it was also to, to make that point that how are we going to be able to maintain nuclear deterrence in perpetuity? Uh, how do we even, even consider something as absurd as that? And to bring the body of Christ to a desecrated site. Yeah. How were you apprehended and how were you treated by the authorities that came for you? I think that we were treated very professionally and very respectfully. There is a Southern culture of politeness and hospitality that I think was manifested in 
our arrest scene. And the officer who came to us after about an hour of us sitting and waiting, he was very personable and he was not at all aggressive. Um, I don't remember him having any weapons. And over the course of the evening of our arrest, he confided in us the story of losing a, a newborn child. And I, I really felt that our presence on the base opened his heart and he understood immediately who we were and why we were there. I think that many people working on that base know the evilness that is entailed with the project. So you were treated professionally, it sounds like, with a level of compassion. And then the government stepped in to prosecute you. What was the nature of their prosecution? What were their charges and what were they seeking to do? I think the folks at the nuclear bunker may have been handled more roughly than we, but go ahead, Patrick. Martha and I were together, so we, we were treated the same way. I think the thing that was really important was that it was dark and it was you know early in the morning and we wanted to do our best to convey a message of nonviolence. And so one of the things that we practiced and it, and it worked very well is that when the police arrived, we yelled out to them when they were off at a distance, we are nonviolent, we come in peace, we're unarmed. So as it turned out, the first military cop who came up to us approached four of us by himself and never drew his gun. And the first thing he did was he cracked a joke. He looked at the stuff that we'd hammered on and he said, now you all know you're in a bit of trouble, don't you? That's what he said to us. So we had successfully conveyed a message of, of nonviolence. So that was really part of our preparation to do that. At what point were you made aware of the charges that you were being brought up on? Well, we were arrested with state charges that were more related to like breaking and entering burglary kind of things. And then a few weeks later, the feds stepped in and prosecuted us separately from the state. And they charged us with the crimes we were eventually tried for and sent to prison for, which was conspiracy, trespassing, destruction of naval property and depredation of government property. And the depredation charge is a 10 year felony. To depredate means to plunder, to lay to waste or to prey upon. So I, I like to point out to the judge and the prosecution that being charged with depredating the ultimate depredator, a Trident 2D5 missile that could kill millions of people in one stroke. So there's certainly an absurdity to the uh, charges against us while Trident gets a free pass. Why do you think the government took such a harsh set of legal actions against nonviolent anti-nuclear activists? Well, they've continually used this approach. U.S. military cannot afford to have its citizens walking onto these bases and exposing these crimes against humanity. And so they use the courts to intimidate and to torment anyone who even thinks of standing up and saying something and acting out uh, against the nuclear arsenal. They have so much invested in keeping this arsenal hidden right in front of the eyes of all Americans. And so they come down very heavy on us in the court system, and they use the court system to punish and silence us. 
I think that it is an embarrassment to the government when they try to pretend that these nuclear facilities are super high security when in fact seven elderly people or at least older people can gain access to them without I mean we did cut a lock but really that wouldn't have been necessary if it had been low tide we could have walked in without cutting a lock we could have taken a kayak and gotten in so there's really no security around these weapon systems and I mean right now to kind of tie it in with what's happening in Ukraine is you know the Soviet Union is using a nuclear power plant as a shield so who would have thought of something so diabolical right but now there it is Soviet Union risking a plant possibly being melted down by using it as a shield so these none of these facilities are safe that's really the thing that's not talked about very much is the dangers how much of the philosophy of plowshares and your personal beliefs was allowed to be aired during the trial well i think with the very first hearing that we had was called an evidentiary hearing and this was very pre-trial and we had theologian from Fordham University and a bishop from Jackson, Mississippi, give testimony or give deposition about our Catholic faith, about Catholic social teaching, about the use of force and the building up of a nuclear arsenal. That was all um, aired very nicely with this evidentiary hearing. And the fact of the matter was, it was beautiful, it was truthful, it was powerful, and in the end, it didn't matter. When you say it didn't matter, was that information brought forward during the trial? Was it ignored? Was it put down? How was it treated in the actual trial? I don't think that any of that information made it into the trial whatsoever. There's a distinction that we have to make here our expert witnesses were allowed to testify only in front of the judge. The judge decided to not allow us to use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. We were gonna to try to apply that to our defense, but we had to have a hearing to see whether or not the judge would agree that it was applicable and the judge decided that it wasn't. In this case, it was the magistrate, but the judge upheld that. So although the media, got to hear the testimony of our witnesses. And so it did get out into the, for people to hear it and know it. The jury, if they had heard any of that pretrial testimony, they were supposed to ignore it. They never had it given to them as testimony on behalf of the defense. So they couldn't use it as a reason to acquit us. It's stunning that some of the key information, certainly that which would have most greatly supported your position was completely eliminated. What happened at the end of the trial? How were you sentenced? Well, we had, I think, a total of maybe 28 charges against us. And the jury took perhaps two minutes per charge to address it and conclude. And we were found guilty on every single charge. So there was no discernment process there. There was just a rubber stamping of a preconceived outcome, as far as I could tell. The federal system is really set up in such a way that it doesn't really offer alternatives to incarceration. This is a discussion, obviously, for another day, but there's a reason why 
the United States has the most people incarcerated of any country in the world. And that's because we don't really entertain alternatives to incarceration. You know, you might make an argument that people who are charged with nonviolent offenses shouldn't have to face long prison sentences. But that's not the way the federal government looks at it. They look at it as a system of punishment, not rehabilitation. And so they uh, sentenced all seven of us to prison, including Father Kelly, who never got out on bail. And he served almost three years in jail. And jail is a far more difficult place to do time than prison. I mean, there's very little recreation. The food's not good. You don't see sunlight. Martha and I were in jail too, but nothing compared to what Steve went through. And Father Steve Kelly did literally 33 months only in jails or in solitary confinement a lot of the time. So the government dealt pretty harshly with us, considering it was a nonviolent offense. How long were you in prison? And when did you get out? And what have you been doing since? I was held in the Georgia County jails, two different jails, for two months. And that was pre-trial. And then I was kept on an ankle monitor and uh, home confinement for another three months. And then perhaps another 12 months, I was on an ankle monitor with a curfew. And then I spent five months at Danbury Federal Prison. And then I spent two months at a halfway house in Manchester, New Hampshire. And then I spent one month on an ankle monitor with home confinement. And I was released from all of that August 25th, which is today. And then I began my three years of supervised release. And I've completed that one year of supervised release. And I have meanwhile attempted to go back to my normal life of caring for family in Vermont and volunteering at Mary House Catholic Worker down in uh, lower Manhattan. This year, I really enjoyed the gardening. Last year, I missed the gardens. When you say August 25th, what year are you referring to? 2021. That's when I started my supervised release. We basically spent most of 2021 incarcerated or under house arrest or whatever. But, but Martha and I both also spent more than two years under very, very uh, controlling situation where we had to wear ankle monitors and, and report to probation officers on a regular basis. And so we were under a, a pretty stiff sentence of house arrest that actually took up more than a year of our lives. And we got no credit for that either. So it was, it was a very long drawn out process of incarceration that went beyond just the time we spent in jail and prison. It sounds like it was intentionally punitive as much as they could make it. I'll tell you, I don't think we were an exception to that rule. I just think the feds are in the business of punishing people, and that's what they do. I, I don't think we got especially, I mean, we were, you know, putting us on those ankle monitors and as if we were some kind of a threat to flee or leave the country or we, you know, we needed some kind of control. I mean, we were honest people. We told the truth. The judge could have just said to us, will you violate the conditions of your release? Yes or no. And we would have said no. But this is what they do. Since getting out of prison, are you free to pursue any kind of 
political plowshares awareness work, or are there restrictions still placed on that? No First Amendment restrictions other than, well, Martha and I both have probation for three years, and I'm limited in the fact that I, I'm not being allowed to travel, but that's part of because I'm non-cooperating with paying some of the money that they're telling me I have to pay. And Martha has a little bit more freedom with her probation officer. A lot of it depends on your probation officer. She's in Vermont and New York, and I'm in North Carolina. So that might have something to do with that. I don't know. Yeah, I was allowed to travel to Ireland. And with that trip, I was hoping to go to Glasgow and London also to give talks, but I was disallowed. But then I was able to do interviews uh, in Dublin. So I continue to do my best to speak out. Um, I'm not allowed to get arrested. I'm able to vigil regarding the starvation of Yemen when I'm in New York. And, you know, I, I set it up ahead of time with my probation officer that I live and work in two places. And so I did find that I had a lot more freedom than some of the other co-defendants. Let's move into a larger arena than just your specific experiences with the Kings Bay Plowshares action. Plowshares activists regularly break silence on issues that the government and the cooperative mainstream media would rather not discuss. Patrick, you've cited to me World War III, the misdirection of the phrase limited use of nuclear weapons and safety preparedness being commonly discussed almost as if using nuclear weapons is a foregone conclusion. Are these regular topics for plowshares? Are they specifically yours? And when you broach them, what kind of responses do you get? And the big thing that's happening now is really happening because of Ukraine. We have Ukraine, and then, of course, we have the uh, NPT Treaty, you know, where we're trying to get the nations of the world to agree to no more nuclear weapons. So on the one hand, we have one step forward, two steps back. So I think all of it points to what's happening now, and you know this from the show, is that we are now just having casual conversations about nuclear war. I mean, it's getting to the point where it seems like it's almost a comfortable conversation. Like instead of screaming from the rooftops, this is insane what we're doing as a human family. There's a casual nature to it that makes me very fraught with horror, really, because I can't understand how we can ever have a conversation about nuclear weapons that becomes casual. And that's really what's happening now. I mean, I've never in my life, and I'm a writer and I read all the time, and I've just never seen discussions about limited use of nuclear weapons in World War III like we're seeing now. Mainstream papers are having columnists write about this. And you can see the major newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times pushing full speed ahead, you know, with China, threatening China. We're messing around with the two most fierce nuclear rivals that we have, Russia and China, and it's a casual conversation. Again, we're just playing with nuclear fire, and it's illogical, and it's patently insane. The U.S. Western corporate media is delusional, and I think that this has been going on for many decades, but maybe the difference that I feel that I'm seeing these days since September 11th, 2001, this supposed war on terror has been used to really militarize our society. I think the levels of violence are reaching drastic levels. 
the more we practice making war abroad, the more it comes home to haunt us in our own war in the United States. And I think that we are being softened up for the next Holocaust, that we are, you know, being trained to accept one horror after the next. And we see that with young black men being gunned down in the streets of the United States. We see it in the wholesale starvation of a country, an impoverished country like Yemen. We see it in the United States getting away with absolutely destroying countries like Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan. So I feel that we really need to go beyond the current dialogue, and that's surely what the Plowshares Movement has been trying to do for the last 40-plus years. There have been a spate of odd events and occurrences. You made allusion to that, Patrick, including the public service announcement that was recently released in New York City from their Department of Emergency Management that covered what do you do in case of a nuclear strike? And really, it was just a slightly slicker, updated version of duck and cover. It made absolutely no sense. But it's been pointed out to me that perhaps this is part of a grooming process to start making nuclear war seem not only ordinary, but survivable and no big thing. I mean, they were talking about to get the radiation out of you, just go inside and take a shower and make sure you use shampoo, which is ridiculous because anyone who's seen a picture of Hiroshima after the bomb, there weren't buildings, there wasn't water, there was nothing there. And that was a tiny bomb compared to the ones that we have available now. Do you think that there might be some kind of grooming behavior in all of this? just to keep us calm and think that this is survivable when indeed it is not. Yes, and Dorothy Day protested the duck and cover air raid drills in New York City from 1955 to 1960, 61. And she called it psychological warfare, that any such nuclear strike would be unsurvivable. And they are certainly trotting this out again in New York City. And the pushback was significant. And we just have to keep continuing resisting and voicing the realities of these preparations. The idea that we're grooming people for the possible use of nuclear weapons, I don't even want to go there. I can't imagine that that that's the rationale behind it. At least I, I hope that's not it. But I don't know what the rationale is. I think it's just sort of maybe it's just a collective foolishness to have these conversations and people don't realize how absurd they are. You've made reference to the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the impact on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plants, which we're speaking on Thursday, August 25th, and there have been numerous shifts, not to the better, in that arena in the last 12 hours, to say nothing of the last 24 hours. So we don't know where this is going to be by the time this interview airs. But it seems that Russia has changed the rules of nuclear war because it doesn't take a fireball coming from a bomb that is launched from a missile or a submarine. It can be done by the breaching of a nuclear reactor on the ground. So my question to you as plowshares activists is, I believe that Plowshares has not addressed nuclear energy and reactors 
as part of your overall agenda. And I'm wondering if this might be time for a shift to realize that not only are they vulnerable to being breached, as you did so easily at a nuclear weapons facility at the submarine base, but also that the spent fuel rods from a nuclear reactor contain plutonium that's only a hair off from weapons-grade plutonium and can be repurposed into a bomb, either an explosive bomb, or if it stays on the ground, a dirty bomb. So might this be the moment that your vision, your focus expands to include some kind of stand or statements regarding nuclear power? I have always understood nuclear weapons and nuclear power are two sides of the same coin. My first arrest was regarding a Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire. So we have addressed that in our history. And, and yes, they are both interrelated. And yes, the world has experienced Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. This business of uh, pinning it on Russia that they're using this nuclear power plant as a as a, some type of shield. You know, I think we need to examine our own behaviors. And I think that we need to look at the log that's in our own eyes with regards to why this war in Ukraine is happening. And this fear mongering in the media about, oh, this nuclear power plant could, you know, be who's behind it, the Russians, the Ukraines, the United States. I'm sorry, I just don't buy those news stories with their face value. There's much more to this story than Russia is using a nuclear power plant as a shield. And I think too, one of the problems that Nuclear Hot Seat knows about as well as we do is that ever since global warming has reached the point where where everybody's now saying how much danger we're in as a human family, how, how much in jeopardy creation is, you're getting a lot of people promoting nuclear power as clean energy. What you have is you even have environmentalists who are saying that in order to stop the use of fossil fuel, I'm going to risk, take the risk with nuclear power. We need more nuclear power, some people are even saying. So it's a real problem. You know, once you get yourself so deeply into the quagmire that we're in with creation and and the earth, uh, then people are looking at desperate solutions. And so People want to see more nuclear power in some cases, and these are environmentalists who take that position. So we're in a lot of trouble when it comes to that, because I've never been an advocate of nuclear power and uh, never will be. And I always think, you know, that's the crutch. You keep claiming, oh, this is clean energy, nuclear power, and that's an excuse not to invest in alternative fuels, you know, so it's a big mistake. In my own prejudicial way, I feel that anyone who claims that nuclear is green and it's a solution to climate change has lost the right to call themselves an environmentalist because they clearly don't understand the fuller implications of the technology and exactly how bad for how long it is. Now, the two of you sound like you are still under probation, but what's next? Where are you putting your focus and where are you putting your energies next in this battle against nukes? Well, I continue to try and educate myself, uh, you know, about the nuclear issues, um, the non-proliferation treaty, the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. I'd like to do more work in supporting and educating on the TPNW. 
And Pope Francis has just come out with a book called Against War. And there's plenty to be said. There's plenty to be spoken of and written of with regards to peacemaking. And the more voices we have in the United States, the heart of empire, you know, speaking out against this violence and corruption, I still hold great hope in continuing to do that kind of work. And it's very desperately needed in these times. I mean, I think that our lives, all seven of us who were part of the Kings Bay Plowshares, we've always been activists. I mean, everybody has been at this for decades. I mean, I'm sure collectively, the seven of us have probably spent 50 years total in jails and prisons among the seven of us. So this is serious business and a serious component of our life's work. So I don't see anything like that changing for me. And, you know, I also, you know, Martha and I are both parents, you know, we have children, we have grandchildren, and it's a personal thing to us to look at the fate of the earth. I don't want my children to die because of global warming. I don't want my children to die because of the use of a nuclear weapon. I'd like to see the world overcome all these horrors and and, uh, find some way to live together in peace and caring for creation. We use the word peace a lot. So I would like to put it to the two of you. What do you believe it will take for the world to finally come to peace? Well, we dream of democracy. We dream of justice. We dream of throwing off the yoke of fascist corporate control of our efforts at self-governing. For me, peace looks like the fossil fuel industry just becoming untenable and collapsing in and of itself, and that people have the capacity and the interest to come together to care for one another. I have immense hope in believing in, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think the majority of people in this world actually do want to abide by that. So it's a question of overcoming this very powerful, very wealthy elite class that is running the show. I believe there's a lot of hope. I wish I was as hopeful as Martha, but (laughs) that's why I hang out with her. (laughs) You listen to Libby's shows too much, it'll hurt your hope too. (laughs) Gosh. But I mean, the truth of the matter is that we know that we're up against some very, very horrifying things. And, and I, I guess I can say this, something that does give me hope is that we've struggled, I think, since the war on terror to sort of get the people outraged in this country. Like, think about what happened during Vietnam. It, it hasn't been happening the last 20 years during the war on terror where there's been this public outcry against it. But I am seeing people starting to recognize global warming, rising sea levels, and so on as, a, as something that has to be addressed. And the only way it can be addressed is through international cooperation. And um, you know, right now, the nine nuclear powers are refusing to become part of the, the treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. So we have to do something to put pressure on these nuclear powers to change their ways. And I'm of the opinion, and I'm sure both of you are too, that Global warming can't be stopped until we disarm. We can't plan the end of the world with nuclear weapons at the same time to claim to be working to save the planet from global warming. I mean, those are diametrically opposed decisions. And so we have to bring 
the human family together to collectively solve these two problems, the arms race war as one problem and global warming. So maybe this is a, an urgency that's gonna shake people. And I, you know, but I thought 9-11 was gonna be that kind of a moment, you know, I really did. You know, being, having grown up in New York City, I really thought, wow, this is gonna wake people up. And I still think, you know, 22 years after 9-11 that there really hasn't been a real effort to figure out why it happened. I don't feel there's a lot of intellectual curiosity on the part of Americans for whatever reason that is. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to say at this time? Well, let's talk about the cost of the military. The U.S. military is the largest carbon footprint on earth and the billions of dollars that are being spent on weapons. It's the weapons industry that's calling the shots for these wars and the next war to come along. And here we have the fiscal year 2023 with the Department of Defense calling for $276 billion. And you know, apparently that money is going to be forked over and the Soviet Union collapsed under the weight of its own empire and its own uh, military spending. And I think that the same thing has to happen to us. I think all of us have a responsibility to try to make the world a better place. You know, Martha cited the teachings, and not just in the Bible, but in all major religious texts of all faiths, is this idea of love being preeminent, to love one another. You know, I think of that great quote from Maury Schwartz of Tuesdays with Maury. He said, love is the only rational act. I don't like to make it come down to something that maybe people don't really want to wrap their minds around, but I mean, I think that really is true, that we have to figure out a way to love, love each other, love God's creation, and work to save the planet from destruction. So uh, I want to say that the primacy of love has to replace hate, and, uh, and we all have to make a commitment as earthlings to preserve our planet and to save it from destruction. So I'd urge people, you don't have to do plowshare actions, that's... Uh, that's not an easy thing to do, but I'm saying that we got to do something. People got to devote some of their life to making the world a better place. And uh, Dorothy Day said, it's the little works we do. It's the little works we do. They all add up. Patrick O'Neill and Martha Hennessy and the other five of the Kings Bay Plowshares Seven, you've done amazing work to raise awareness. You have Put yourselves, your lives, your time, your energy on the line on behalf of people and the environment and spiritual belief and love. And for that, I thank you. And I also thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's really important to have been here and given the opportunity to, to speak to so many people. Thank you for, the, for this work that you do. Thank you, both of you. This is my love for people on the planet by doing this show every week. That was Martha Hennessy and Patrick O'Neill of the Plowshares Movement and the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. We will have a link up to the website that tells the entire story of the action and what happened to them, along with what you can do to support their work. That's Kings Bay Plowshares 7, the number 7.org, and we'll link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 586. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out.
It is with great sadness that we note the passing of Cecile Pineda. She was an author, playwright, director, mother, blogger, and anti-nuclear activist. One of her books, Devil's Tango, was written in the wake of the Fukushima accident and is both fierce and poetic. In the San Francisco Bay Area, she was a fixture at, at anti-nuclear and other activist meetings and events. She will be missed by many of us, and may her memory be a blessing. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 13, 2022. Hey, the way things are going in the nuclear world, you need to keep up with this every week and not miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. And we make it easy for you to do. On the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the big yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one email, one, that's it, with the link and a short description of the show's content. Or, if you choose, you can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel because we're on them all. And feel free to copy and paste the link into email to interested friends, interested groups, and if you've got a website, post it there. Link to us. Help us share nuclear information from that all-important different perspective. And you can help us out because... If you see something going on in your area and have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, you can send that to us in an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022 Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. Cite the name of the program, the URL, and the names of anyone you happen to be quoting or citing. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you yet again that the last thing that anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There you have it, and that is it. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.